We've just sung, we believe God sends his Spirit and part of the coming of the Spirit is to help us to understand and receive God's Word, which is what we're going to do now. The, the car drivers among you, I wonder if you can think back to when you were learning to drive. Can you think back that far? There was so much to remember, wasn't there? You just got the hang of forward gears and, and, and going in that direction and even changing gear and, uh, and mirror and signal and manoeuvre and indicators and all that stuff. In my day, you even had to remember to wind down the window and put your hand out. And, and then the instructor would say to you, today we're going to um, do a three-point turn using the forward and reverse gears without hitting the curb and, and next week we'll um, do a hill start uh, clutch control and all of that, and, um, and then we'll reverse round a corner without hitting the curb. Uh, you have to remember the 27 places where you're not allowed to park and the 35 places where you're not allowed to overtake. And there always seemed to be something new, something fresh. After a while, your head was spinning. I just wonder if the first disciples felt a bit like that. So much new to take in day after day. They'd, they'd met this preacher, a man called Jesus from Nazareth, carpenter's son, but he seemed to, to have something different about him. They listened as he explained the Old Testament, the prophets, the law. It made sense. There was something about this man and gradually, gradually, they came to accept him as the Messiah. They tried then to grasp this new concept that he was giving to them, that one day he would be arrested and tried, he would suffer and would die. How did that fit in with the concept of a Messiah? But then that he would on the third day, come to life again. And then that he would disappear from their sight. And then that he would be with them again, but by his Holy Spirit. It seemed as though all the time there was something new to take in, something new to grasp, something new to believe and to do. Holy lives to be lived to love one another, to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. However, were they to grasp all this? On the day, on this day, the day of Pentecost, this Pentecost Sunday, we're going to try and look at those opening verses from the Acts of the Apostles. Luke, Luke has been writing his two-stage, two-volume version of church history. Look at Acts chapter 1 and, and verse 1. In my former book, the former book was Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel was covering the birth of Jesus through to the ascension. And this is Acts of the Apostles, Luke volume 2, if you like, from the ascension to the birth and growth of the church. And in these first 11 verses, he's talking, Luke is talking to us about the 
the promise and the power and the purpose of the Holy Spirit. So first of all, he explains about the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's a threefold promise. The Father promised it, verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. Not only that, the, the Father promised and the Son promised as well. Verse 4, you heard me speak about. When did Jesus speak about it? Again and again. Um, particularly in John's Gospel, chapters 14 to 16, are all about Jesus explaining the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 7 and verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And then John adds this explanation. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So John is explaining what Jesus was saying and what he actually meant by that. And then the, the third part of the promise in the Acts of the Apostles, in verse 5, Jesus, or, or Luke is saying, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, as John the Baptist has promised You'll find that earlier in Luke's Gospel when John said, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So there it is in, in the Acts, Luke's second volume. Luke saying, the Holy Spirit will come as promised. The Father promised it. The Son promised it. John the Baptist promised it. And on this day of Pentecost, we simply declare, Hallelujah! God keeps his promises. So the promised Holy Spirit. And, and then Luke goes on to talk about the power of this Spirit. I suppose just in the last few years we've become very accustomed to seeing the power of, of nature, the power of creation. We saw, was it just a, a year or two back in New Orleans, that hurricane and the, and the mighty floods sweeping through, people killed, thousands made homeless, buildings washed away. We see ice flows breaking up a few years back in this country, we saw a hurricane sweep across the, the south of England. Millions of trees uprooted, buildings destroyed. On that morning, I happened to have a prayer breakfast at 7 o'clock in the morning. I got on my bike and cycled out and wondered why all these trees were lying across the road. 
the power of nature destroying, breaking. The Greek word for power is dunamis, the word from which we get our word dynamite. The dynamite, the power, and it's that same dunamis, that dynamic power that uh, Luke refers to when you see in verse 8, you will receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Just as the discovery of, of nuclear power ushered in the nuclear age, so we're declaring that Pentecost ushers in the age of the Holy Spirit's power in the world, in the church. If you go back into the pages of the Old Testament, Zechariah had a glimpse, a foretaste of that, a vision of a golden lampstand. You're quite into buildings at Burlington. Well, Zechariah had this vision of of seven lamps, a golden lampstand, each one holding seven lamps, and each lamp supplied with a, a, a pipe, and the pipe linked to a reservoir, and the reservoir kept full by two olive trees. It was like a living supply of oil from the olive tree into the reservoir and through the pipe and up into the lamp. And Zechariah adds the meaning of this. A vision, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The background was this, that that there were many obstacles towards the rebuilding of the second temple in Jerusalem. And God's vision was assuring them that those obstacles would be overcome not by human effort, not by intellectual ingenuity, but by God's power. Just as the olive tree was supplying the reservoir and leading to oil for the lamps, so God, by his Holy Spirit, supplies us with the resources that we need. But it's not as though we can sit back and and leave God to it and say, he supplies the Holy Spirit, the effort is his, it's all up to him. I desperately wanted for the children's talk this morning, um, I actually asked um, Chris Sheldrake about this, whether there was anyone in Burlington who could supply me with an electric bike but she wasn't able to do that. I I had a vision of me going round the church on my electric bike, your electric bike. The the illustration was going to be this. Do you know the sort of bike I mean, where you can pedal, but if the the hill is a bit steep or the going gets tough, you can flick a little switch and and somehow an electric motor on the back wheel kicks in and gives you a little burst of energy. It's not a perfect illustration, but it's saying this, that... um, the Christian life is not like, like, a, like a motorbike where God does everything and we simply uh, have the engine to help us. But it's not like a pedal bike where we have to do everything and God does nothing. But there's somehow a combination of our effort and his electric energy to energise, to 
help to empower. We peddle, but he provides as well. As, as I go around to churches, I have to say that I meet some weary Christians. I don't know if there are weary Christians at Burlington, but, but I meet people in my own church who are physically tired. Perhaps you know something of the, the tiredness of looking after small children or a demanding job. Or perhaps some nervous energy saps you and you find it difficult to sleep. Or the worry of deteriorating health in old age. People who are physically tired. I, I meet people who are emotionally tired. More and more being demanded of them, expected from them. Perhaps a demanding marriage, a demanding relationship. For some, perhaps even the sheer weariness of giving out to others in their job, in their life, when often they feel empty inside and as though they've got nothing left to give. There are some weary people about. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. But the, the day of Pentecost is saying to us, that we can rely on God and his Spirit, not to do everything for us, like a motorbike, but not to leave it all to us like a push bike, but rather like that electric bike to help us on with the journey of life, to say to us, without me you can do nothing, without me you can achieve nothing. If anything is to be achieved, then it's through me and the glory will go to me. It's my power, my dunamis, my dynamite, which will be in you and through you. What about the purpose? What is the purpose of this day of Pentecost, this gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, again, our passage in Acts 1 gives us some of the answers. Other religions, other world religions, tend to believe that their leaders have finished their work in their lifetime. But we can see from this passage that Jesus only began his work. In verse 1, I wrote to you of all that Jesus began to do and to teach, but there is more to come. During his life he has established the church and now that church is to continue the work of Jesus, says Luke. And the purpose of that church is to establish the kingdom. Verse 3, after his suffering, he showed them himself and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive and that he was establishing, he was speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus wants through his church to establish his kingdom in the world. And he had to correct some of their misunderstandings, some of their mistaken notions. He had to explain to them that God's kingdom was not physical, but spiritual. The first disciples were looking for a territorial kingdom. Verse 6 
they said to him, Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were looking for territory, for land, for kingship and people. And Jesus replies in verse 7, It's not for you to know the times or the dates that my Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. My kingdom is not about land and territory. My kingdom, says Jesus, is about where people open their hearts to my Holy Spirit. So that kingdom is spread, not by soldiers, but by witnesses. Witnesses, if you like, who have tuned in to my Spirit's power and let the message spread throughout the world. My, my kingdom is spread not by warfare, but by peace, the peace of love in the hearts of men and women. My kingdom is spread not by politics, but by dunamis of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, let's be honest, they, the kingdom of God has very earthly consequences. Practical results in terms of ethical conduct in business and trade, in social justice, in housing and education and work, in our relationships with one another, in our friendships and our marriages, in the way that we organize our family, drive our car, ride our bike. It should make a difference in the way that Christians relate to one another and to the world. In recent years, we've seen wonderful things like tear fund and care for the family. We've seen Christians involved in housing and political developments and street pastors, and all of that is good. The Holy Spirit should be making a difference in the way that we relate to one another and to the world. But it's a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. And then says Luke in this passage, God's kingdom is international in our membership. We've seen it already. It's not just about Israel. It's about Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. It's a bit like dropping a stone in a pond and the ripples have gone out to all nations. God's kingdom is multiracial and multicultural. I have a daughter living in, in Mauritius and she goes to church there and there are people of all nationalities worshipping God. I have a friend, uh, I'm not even sure if the, the Christian band Iona is still in existence, but my friend Dave used to be a member of Iona, and I, I recall him describing in one of his Christmas letters how they recorded one of their tracks at Kensington Temple in London. Apparently Kensington Temple is a, is a great multicultural Christian church, 
with uh, 110 different nationalities represented. And David described how in one of the songs, people all began to praise God in their own language. Uh, And I I quote from his Christmas letter, the sea of voices with the response that came at the end of all these people worshipping God in their own language was an emotional and joyous experience. The kingdom of God is international. And the kingdom of God, thirdly, says Luke, is, is gradual in its expansion. Verse 6, will you establish the kingdom now at this time, say the disciples? And Jesus replies, it's not for you to know that God's timing, it's all in his hands. Curb your curiosity, but my kingdom is coming and will be established. And you are to be witnesses to me in gradually widening circles, starting from Samaria as the stone is dropped in, starting from Jerusalem as the stone is dropped in the pond and out through Samaria and Judea and the ripples will go out to the ends of the earth, geographically and to the ends of time historically. And those ripples in the passage of time reached Great Britain, reached Suffolk, reached Ipswich, reached you and me, and we have entered into that inheritance. And it's our purpose, our job, to help that gospel. We have no no liberty to stop in declaring the gospel until the end of time and the ends of the earth have been reached. So we've seen in this passage something of the promise of the Spirit, something of the power of the Holy Spirit, something of the purpose of the Holy Spirit. You you might um, feel yourself wanting to add a, a fourth P that's predictable, We know it, but nevertheless we need to be in tune to that and receiving that. What do we say then in the light of this Pentecost Sunday, the light of God's Holy Spirit, to those those weary Christians that we referred to earlier? I think it's okay to admit sometimes to being weary. Sometimes it's hardest to admit that to ourselves or to our nearest and dearest. It's so easy to read, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and think that we have the air of invincibility. But I sometimes meet stressed Christians, Christians who are breaking down under the pressure. And it's okay to admit that to ourselves and to one another. It's okay as Christians to take a break to say that I need a time out. Down in in Devon there is a a church centre for weary church ministers and church leaders. Um, The the director is a lady called Sarah Horseman, a a doctor who sees it as part of her Christian ministry to help people in need, particularly church leaders. And she's written a book called Living with Stress, a guide for ministers and church leaders. You might like to come and have a look at it afterwards if you'd like to. Um, But in that, she says this, and I thought this was quite significant. 
she said, spirituality does not bring immunity from stress. And it is sad and damaging that ministers suffering from stress are often seen as spiritual failures. Pray harder is just the pseudo-spiritual version of try harder, which is so damaging to exhausted people. Somebody said to me once, as Christians we preach justification by faith, but so often we live justification by works. We need to hear that message, that being filled with the Holy Spirit does not make us invincible. It throws us back on God's resources. This passage reminds us that the Holy Spirit is a gift. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you heard me speak about and which John promised. A gift needs to be received. It is given, but we have to receive that Holy Spirit. We have to switch on our radios. We have to tune into him. You've probably heard that well-known quip from D.L. Moody when he was asked if he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, yes, but I leak. We leak, friends. We leak. We need to be filled daily. Make it part of our prayer life to say to God, thank you for your dunamis, your dynamic gift. I trust your promise I receive your power. I want to be equipped and share in your purposes for the world so that your kingdom may come, your will be done. I am weak. I'm weary. I need your resources. Come to me now, I pray. Amen.